There, there are some basic metrics that we apply when we're looking at assets, okay? I, I look at these assets, multifamily specifically, a little differently than other people do. And it's ma mainly it's because I worked in engineering and I worked in like as a CIO running enterprise tech. And I also worked in manufacturing for some time. I don't know what it is, but there's almost like a certain metric that you're looking at, like cost per door versus rent. It's a very easy way to figure out if the deal's gonna float or not. And there's a lot of other metrics that go around it. Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. All right, guys, today I get to interview Agostino, a man from Bulletproof Cashflow, the founder who's done some incredible things in the fund space. You know, so basically a lot of us have heard about syndication where you're buying these big buildings, these multifamily, et cetera. Funds are kind of a similar vehicle to do the same thing. And Agostino has gone so far on the journey. Not only has he done tons of those, but he's now moved on to doing net leases and big commercial buildings and all types of different things where you can make money. So we're going to talk about some of the differences on today's show so that you can get a sense of like, what are the different ways we can make money in real estate if we have capital to deploy, or if maybe you're a syndicator or a fun person yourself and you want to go a little bit deeper, we're going to talk about that. So stay tuned through this whole episode. Augustino, thank you for showing up on the show with us today. Take us into a little bit, what started leading you out of the multifamily game into more of the net lease and some of these other commercial opportunities? Awesome. Yes. Well, hey, first off, thanks for having me on. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. You know, uh, I started off doing the multifamily game, right? I started getting into the multifamily, started doing it first on buying on my own, then partnering with other folks, and then eventually syndicating deals, right? So we, we grew the business out fairly quickly because at the time, one of the things that I was always very good at doing is underwriting deals, finding good deals, putting them together, getting the right debt, matching up the equity with the debt to buy the asset. It's one of the key things you have to know how to do when you're putting deals together. People underestimate that part. Did that you, part did you of grind that out? Were you naturally good with numbers? Like what was the process like for you for becoming a good underwriter? That's a good question. Uh, so my background is actually tech, right? So I used to run large enterprise IT for corporate America, right? So large public companies, private companies, things like that. And my background is, is engineering. So I, I have a natural inclination to numbers, so to speak. And so it's not, it's not a, you know, it's not really i I'm not a stranger to numbers. That's one thing. Right. And secondarily, what we also do is because my background is tech, we apply a whole lot of techie techie stuff to how we run our business too. Right. So, uh, it's in all parts of our business, not only just the multifamily side, but also the, the commercial side, the development, the net lease side and, and our education business too. So yeah, it's, it's pretty cool, but, I would say that, that then having a natural inclination to numbers is very important. Ha having the ability to build the relationships with the brokers and the lenders was huge, right? You have to be able to, to be straight up and honest with people, uh, not play hide the ball with them. People tend to get pissed off when you do that. <laughs> Don't ever do that. <laughs> so yeah, there's, there's something to it for sure. And so... Talk to me about some of these traits. Were they learned? Like, did your parents teach you like to be upfront? Was it observational? Like, because it's, it's not, I thought it would be more natural than it is when you encounter a difficult situation, you would just tell the truth and be forthright. But a lot of these people that are in these syndications and funds and just in the business world in general, they get on hard times and they just clam up and you don't know, like even as real estate agents, like when you're dealing with lenders, if the deal is not going well, they just ghost you until yeah. they can hopefully pull it out from the dark. So where did it become obvious to you? 
that's that's probably one of the hardest parts in this business, especially these days right now. I mean, believe it or not, I mean, we've been in a recession for a little while now. The, the media hasn't really acknowledged it. And it's really, there's, there's all political reasons behind this. I'm not going to get into that, right? The thing is, is that the, the, the full swing of the re recession hasn't even started yet. That's how bad it is, right? So what you, what as someone as an LP, they're looking for some sort of open line of communication. And to your point a second ago, about the, the people clamming up, they also clam up not only to their LP investors, their partners that, that, that have invested in these deals, but they, what's worse is they clam up to the lenders, the people that actually, the biggest investor in the deal, they clam up to those guys too. Listen, guys, lenders do not want your property. They just want to get paid back. And the last thing they want is to take on a bunch of assets. Usually, sometimes they'll even work with you. Like if you just tell them, hey, look, here's, what, here's what's up. Here's what's going on. Here's what I'm working on. I'm trying to do X, Y, Z. Can you help me out? Most times they will, you know? So it, that's one of the key things that, uh, that you, you, you don't want to go into a deal thinking about stuff like that. Nobody ever does. But in times like this right now, where you're hearing about billionaires handing over $400 million deals back to the bank, back to the lender, you have to be prepared to handle those types of things. And I think that you know, what, what, in the answer to the question about like, how do you know, when I was growing up, I lived by a motto that integrity is everything. Without integrity, you have nothing. Okay. And I kind of like lived my life that way. I, I'm not going to pretend to be perfect guy or whatever, but I'm, I've always been a very upfront type of guy. Uh, I don't, I don't sugarcoat it. Sometimes I say things that piss people off because it's what I believe to be the truth. I'm not saying I'm always right, but it's like, sometimes, you know what, man, you need someone else to tell you that your breath stinks, even though your nose is an inch above your, your mouth. Right. <laughs> so true. That's what it is. And, and some people don't want to hear it, but I, I usually back it up with facts and knowledge and data. Right. It's, it isn't like I just blah, blah, blah. I get pissed off. It's more like, look, here's the numbers, here's what's up, and here's how we have to fix it. You know, and that's as a, um, I like to put this in, akin to a wartime general and a peacetime general, wartime president, peacetime president. We've had these types of presidents even in our own United States here over the last 200 some years, right? Right now, you need, if you're not a wartime person, a wartime leader, you're going to have issues because you have to be prepared for some conflict, right? Especially as we go into a recession. So I'm more of a wartime type of guy that will, that I'll make the hard decisions, bring in the right people, get rid of the ones that no longer serve the portfolio. It's tough to do. I'm not saying that, it's, that I love doing it and that's easy, but if it has to get done, it has to get done. You know, I'm sure it's not easy for any president to, you know, say, fine, we're going to go to war with, that, with this other country or whatever the case may be. Nobody wants that. But sometimes hard decisions need to be made. And, and for an LP, I would almost feel better partnering with someone that can make those decisions and navigate the rough storms that we are going into right now. Like you want those types of people. You want someone that can make the hard decisions and be straight up and honest with you. And um, that's a trademark of a good, responsible syndicator or someone who's putting together the fund. It's a, it's a trademark of it. You know, you want someone like that. Yeah, hundred percent. Now, when we talk about wartime, we talk about getting through adversity and struggles. You, you can think about your current path, right? As a multifamily guy, as 
continuing to go versus pivoting, right? So obviously sometimes it's, you got to get through the issues and sometimes you recognize the, the game I'm playing is just not the same. It's not, it's not the best game to play for you. What was the thought process going into branching off and, and playing a little bit of a slightly different game? Yeah, that's a good question. So there, there are some basic metrics that we apply when we're looking at assets. Okay. I look at these assets, multifamily specifically, a little differently than other people do. And it's main, mainly it's because I worked in engineering and I worked in like as a CIO running enterprise tech. And I also worked in manufacturing for some time. I don't know what it is, but there's almost like a certain metric that you're looking at, like cost per door versus rent. It's a very easy way to figure out if the deal is going to float or not. And there's a lot of other metrics that go around it. A class, B class, C class, D class, you know, whatever, right? Where it's located, population, I get all that. But there's some very, very easy, easy things that'll tell you if a deal's gonna float or not. And I'll say that one of the, the last deals I did is a good area. Our cost basis was very, very good. And the rents were, were good too. The rents supported it, but I'm like, I can't buy any more deals now. I already knew. I knew this was gonna be the last deal for 18 months because at, at the time, I was stealing the deal. I knew I was. And now those same assets are trying to trade for 10 grand more, even today, at the same rents. Or maybe the rents are marginally. Per unit. Per, per unit, yeah. More. Yeah. More. So I was paying like 38 a door. And now those same units are probably 48 a door plus today, right now. And the rents, they've moved, but not they, they've not moved the same amount, right? So I'm like, huh, I was right. You know, I, I, that, that was a basic, like, and I make these decisions very, very quickly. I was already in the in development when I was doing this too, but I, but I did know that to, the time to buy assets, time to take some chips off the table for a second, wait it out. This is, a, this is almost two years ago, right? And we've been primarily focused on our development and net lease business. Like development is usually, um, uh, adaptive reuse office, you know, we buy office converted to multifamily. I love doing those types of deals and adaptive reuse. That's adaptive reuse. And then urban infill of actual build outs. Like and when I say my, when I mean by urban infill, I'm not looking to build a hundred units or 200 units or 300 units, whatever in the middle of nowhere. There's guys that do that. Like here's like, you know, there's, there's you know, two big cities and someone will build some massive project right here in the middle because the land is cheap. To me, I would never do that deal, right? I wanna be where the people and the money is already there because here's the thing, if you're able to build inside of an area where there's already a torrent of activity taking place every single day, there's money transacting, there's people moving, there's things happening. I wanna be in the middle of all that because if I can provide good quality housing to those people that are already there, I'd rather pay a little more for the land but know that I can fill that place up quickly and continue renting the, raising the rents as I go. That makes, that, that to me makes total sense. I'm not going to pretend to be like Donald Trump and I'm an expert at real estate, but that, that to me makes sense. Right. <laughs> right. 100%. So yeah, I mean, it makes sense to me and not to mention too, the types of deals that we're, that we're taking on usually are some sort of tax advantaged deal, right? So there's either opportunity zone or tax abatement or a combination of both or some sort of pace financing that helps fill out the capital stack. So it means less money for us to bring to the table and less money for the LPs to bring to the table too, our limited partners to bring to the table. And we can still get the same quality leverage of a brand new asset 
and, and we can make a nice exit later on, right? To try to build stuff in, say, Texas, the same, because I can build the same stuff here, I can build it in Texas. The rents are comparable. But over here, here in Cleveland, for instance, I get OZ, I get tax abatement, I get PACE, I get all these different things. But here in Texas, I get none of that. Where would you rather build? Of course, we're same amount of money. Yeah. 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 It's the same amount of money. Like the cost per door to build is, is going to be about the same. Why yeah. wouldn't you do it that way? You know, it makes sense to me. Right. But you know, Hey, it's, it's, that's how we do it. That's our, that's our model. Right. And on the net lease business and, and our fortress fund, what we, we do is we acquire least, I want yeah. to talk a little bit about development. So in the residential side, small residential side, development is risky in corrections and recessions. You see a lot of developers have a big net worth and it goes, they go belly up. Is development in this sort of space different? I mean, obviously you're, you got a fund and you're bringing on LPs, but I, I would, I would assume probably incorrectly that development is more risky in this type of environment. Am I wrong? You're exactly right. It's, it's risky, but I'll tell you why it's risky. Okay. It's risky for, for those reasons I said before, because what a lot of these people do is they'll take on some project that is in the middle of nowhere. And if you're able to put in, again, you're doing urban infill type deal, number one, number two, you're able to get the place leased up very, very quickly. What that means is doing the pre-lease ahead of time, right? That's how you de-risk the situation here. The, the biggest, the, the reason why development is quote risky versus multifamily, if you think about it, it's the same product. What's the difference? The difference is one is not occupied and the other one is, that's why. So if you're able to de-risk it by building it in a place where there's a lot of people and you start your pre-lease early enough, I mean, you're not going to be at hundred percent when you're first done. Of course not. You're not going to be there. Right. But the reason why there's risk there on the development side is because you have a big nut to cover while you're doing the lease up. And the key is to try to keep, try to get it, try to get it leased as fast as possible at the onset or before the onset, before you actually close, before the, before the deal is done, you want to pre-lease it. That's the hardest part, right? And again, you de-risk it by, by doing urban infill, right? You, you build where there's already people there. There's already a, a built-in supply of people that are looking to live there, right? That's ultimately how you de-risk a situation. Earlier, you mentioned Texas, and I know in places like Austin, it seemed like there might've been some overdevelopment and home prices dropped quite substantially compared to other areas. Like, how are you gauging the supply demand curve, you know, as so many multifamily people are, you know, developing and growing, I mean, particularly in Texas? Well, I don't buy in Texas. Right? <laughs> yeah. That's part so, of the reason, I'm so, sure. Yeah, yeah. We, well, because that's, that's the thing, you know, it's kind of like, okay, here's the thing. I came out to Cleveland, not because I love the weather. I don't. Okay. The reasons why I even came to this market in the first place was because I saw an opportunity. The opportunity was that after the 2008 crash, there wasn't a whole lot of activity taking place here immediately, right? It just wasn't happening. So Cleveland was really behind the curve. And when I decided to really make the shift from corporate to the real estate world and, and throw away a 15 year career, six figure salary, that whole thing, dump it all away, throw it all away just to focus on real estate. Okay. When I did that, I wanted to make sure I did it right. I chose this market because at the time I was buying stuff for 30,000 a door and the rents were 550 bucks a month. Okay. It was, it was, 
that, that, that made no sense. And at that time, five years ago, people still were making the mad rush to Texas and to Florida. Right now, it wasn't even, this is way before COVID, obviously, yeah. right? So I'm like, huh, this is interesting. I didn't even, I did not have the complete understanding of, of OZ. I didn't have a complete understanding of the tax abatement, the pace, all that. I don't even know if OZ was even a thing back then. But I know the, the price per pound made sense. No, oh, that, that I did. I mean, Cleveland eventually caught fire and, and, you know, hockey yeah. sticked up, but. And I, and I knew it would because I, saw, I knew that there was value here. And I, I'm not going to pretend to like I was some sort of real estate expert. I was still like I was consuming as much material as I possibly could to learn the commercial real estate business. This is, again, five, six years ago, as fast as I possibly could. Right. And I started to understand that part of it. And that was that's really that's 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 how you really ins insulate the risk there too, because people, they, they, they overpay for an asset and the rents don't have any upward mobility. You have a problem, right? I never did that. I never did that. So um, the, when it comes to Texas though, I think that th there's, there's a lot of folks out there. A lot of the big gurus are out there. And I think a lot of people get into deals that they shouldn't be doing to begin with. Right. Um, there's, as a matter of fact, a broker asked me to talk to some lady I don't know why this broker would have me talk to this lady because the broker was trying to sell this lady a property and she showed me the property. And I'm like, this is a terrible deal. You can't do this deal. <laughs> don't do this deal, lady. What are you doing? You know, it was terrible. It was a terrible deal, you know? So, and uh, I don't know if she did it or not, but I, but I told her, it's like your, your, your price per door and your rents, like you're going to be underwater on day one. And then I go, what kind of debt did you get on this? Oh, the bank only gave me a 20 year amortization of some super high interest rate. And I'm like, you do realize what the bank is saying when they do this, right? She goes, no, I have no idea. What does this mean? I go, this means the bank hates the deal. If the bank, if your biggest investor hates the deal so much, they'll begrudgingly give you this loan. You don't do the deal. That's a, that's a rule, right? And if you ask like a bunch of banks and all of them give you the same type of stuff, you better re-examine your numbers again, right? Because they're telling you that the deal sucks. I'm aware of this. I know this, right? I've done a lot of deals. I've underwritten a lot of deals, right? If the bank loves a deal, they're going to they're give you amazing terms. They're going to give you a 30-year amortization, maybe even longer if they, if they like it that much, right? They may even give you extra funds because they love the deal, right? That certainly depends on, right? But in Texas right now, no such, no such animal. You can't do it. <laughs> Not available. Right. I think people just overpaid for stuff and uh, the guys that did are going to get hurt. Unfortunately, you know, I, I don't, I don't wish to see anybody get hurt. I don't want to see people fail. You know, I, I honestly, honest to God, I don't, you know, but it's, uh, I think a lot of the gurus out there, they, they misinform a lot of people and they get into deals they shouldn't be doing. You know, they really do. That's it's, it's really unfortunate. Everyone who listens to our show knows Tim and I are passionate about obtaining financial freedom through real estate investing. We also know that everyone's situations and goals are different. And while there are programs out there that show you a path to financial freedom, many of these programs are just too cookie cutter and don't take your personality, situation, and desired outcome into account. Think about the number of times that you've watched a guru online and tried to do the exact same thing as they did, but had nowhere near the same results. You are not alone. When I got started, I was continually paying for courses and getting only partial results until I discovered the path that made sense for me. 
The results prove this out. Most online course creators have let us in on their dirty secrets that 90 to 95% of their students never complete their course and achieve their desired outcome. This is not something that we're okay with. The benefit of working with Tim and I is that we are interviewing between five and 20 people every single week. We have accumulated hundreds of seven-figure strategies and gotten inside scoop from these successful entrepreneurs. We're able to work with you to pick the strategy that will best fit and then help you create the custom plan to take you quickly into financial freedom. As a former math teacher, I always taught my students that the fastest way between two points is a straight line. If you want to get rid of the many curves in the road that can make the journey longer and more costly, then go to coaching.freedomchaserspodcast.com and book a call with us and let's get you on a straight line path to freedom. Yeah, and I'm in groups where there's a lot of syndicators and it's different. The tone now as opposed to six months or a year ago where six months a year ago, everybody was winning, everybody was finding deals and it was all great. Now all of a sudden it's like, hey, my bank might take my loan back and there's a lot of negativity going on right now. And I think a lot of people just were convinced they could be syndicators super easily, et cetera, versus like putting in the real paces to get to get good at underwriting and do the right things. Um, take us a little, a little bit about net leasing. I know that's kind of the direction we were heading. So, so take us into that. Yeah, absolutely. So I saw even two years ago, I knew, like I've been through recessions before. I've seen it happen. And I knew that the good times were eventually going to end. And what I mean by good times is cheap money. I mean, if you think about it, looking back at it now, they were giving away money. They were giving it away for free, right? And I knew from the first recession, I'm like, I learned my lesson there and I carried it this time. That's why I, when I was buying all this stuff at, with 3% money, it made total sense, right? How do you go wrong on that? You want to try to lock it in as long as possible. And that's what I did. Now, I learned that from the first recession, right? But I knew that times were eventually going to change. And I knew that stability, stability first is one thing that the investors are always going to want to have, especially in times of turbulence. So we created this fortress fund, right? And the fortress fund model is as follows. It's a blind pool fund. It's similar to syndication, pretty much. The Can difference is... What blind pool fund means? Yeah. Yeah, the difference is, is that we'll tell you, I'll say, okay, here's what we're going to buy. We're going to buy uh, corporate backed assets. And what, and uh, so basically think of like Dollar General, Dollar Tree, Walgreens, a deal that already has a tenant in it with a corporate guarantee. And what that means is, is that if family dollar, if we buy an asset and family dollars in there, and they decide, you know what, we don't want to be here anymore. And they leave, they still, they're still responsible for paying that lease. Right, yeah. that's you're huge. Rent no matter what, yeah. you're going to rent no matter what, right? And that's so corporate guarantee. Like all the assets we're buying, corporate guarantee, decent locations, good assets, and we're buying the land, the building, the lease, all the whole kit and caboodle. We own the whole thing, okay? And we're, and so in a blind pool, we're saying, look, we're going to buy ten to fifteen of these locations. We don't. We're going to we're going to target mostly red states with very little uh, overhead from the government. And um, we expect this type of return and that's it. So, it, so when you're doing net lease deals the way that we are, it's, a, it's critical to move very, very quickly. So we kind of have to have the cash in the bank before we can, like, before we can start going out and bidding on deals. Because bidding, uh, going after a deal, you have to underwrite it quickly, understand what you're getting into, and then execute 30 days, 45 days. Very, very fast. Well, wow, that's a big deal. 
very quick transactions. And some of these deals are not gigantic, by the way. Some of them, um, they might be like a million to two million. You know, some of them might be less. Um, and those those assets under, especially under a million, those ones transact is way way more of those transactions, right? Because more it's it's in the grasp of most people. Uh, equate it to single family homes. There's a lot of single family home transactions even today, right? So think of think of net lease under a million is like that. When you're getting like six million and up, those transactions don't move as quickly, right? So um, they have typically have a higher cap rate and some a longer longer time for due diligence and financing closes, right? So there's there's a whole set of rules around how this stuff is done. Uh, the way that we're different though is because we have a technology background. Everything we do is centered around tech. We apply a high degree of data analytics around understanding what we're buying, the areas that we're buying in. We even we even look at the number of phone of phones of people. <laughs> via their, cell, their mobile devices to see how popular the area is. And if we see that it's a good, strong location by how many people visit it, we can safely assume, okay, if they're spending roughly $6.30 per transaction, they should be making X amount per month or annually, right? Um, so that might be enough to sustain the business. And then we have to guess sometimes because the family dollar, Dollar Tree, whoever, well, Starbucks, they won't always tell us what the revenue is of that location. They won't always tell us, right? Because we're always looking to try to figure out like how profitable that, that, that location is so we don't buy it by mistake. So we do a lot of data analytics before we get into a deal, right? Uh, but I'll tell you what, man, I mean, you know, when you're able to hit a 7 to 10% return, you're going to get massively rich doing that lease? No, but you will get a risk-adjusted return. If I can tell you every single month and a third of every month, you're going to get a check. That's pretty cool, right? It's not yeah. like that with multifamily. You know, with multifamily, it's choppy and it's quarterly. And you know, if some if something bad happens, if COVID happens again, you know, no one's getting paid on that lease. It doesn't matter what happens because there's a lease in place. It's a corporate lease, and they always pay every single time. Can't beat that. So then, when you're analyzing these now that we've experienced COVID. Is there new factors in your underwriting to account for like what businesses might be essential or not? Or uh, it's all we buy is essential businesses. So we we look we do look at what what businesses did not shut down last time, so we know how to project in the future, right? So the, all the DGs, Dollar General, um, most most all the retails really didn't shut down even Walmart for that matter. Not that we're buying Walmart. Walmart to me is too high a risk to buy, um, at least in some of the areas that we're buying in. What's that? Why is Walmart a big risk? I would think um, they're really Because of the size. Yeah. Because of the size, you know, the last thing you want to have is a, you know, <laughs> a 25,000 square foot Walmart. There aren't exactly a lot of people looking to, to rent a space, a giant box, right? Yeah. Like there aren't too many of those folks. And the last thing you want to be doing is sitting on one of these assets for a long period of time for the owner of it. That's the last thing you want, right? Yeah. So, um, but if it's in like, here's the thing, if it's in Miami, we might do that deal. Sure, maybe we tear it down, sell it to a developer and you know they could build a high rise on it, whatever. But it depends on the location. But to buy it, you've seen those tertiary markets when you're driving all of a sudden you see a Walmart there. I don't know that I would do a deal like that. It's too high risk. You know, and because we use a fund model, 
we have like say 15 of these locations. And let's say for instance, this Dollar General right over here decides they're gonna leave this location. Well, we still get paid through the rest of the lease, but there's all these other assets in the same fund. So when one person invests, they're investing in the entire fund, not just in one store, the whole fund. And the whole fund is paying that investor back, right? If a big chunk of it is made up by a giant Walmart, yeah, you know, and it's, it's, yeah, it's a problem. Yeah. So let's talk about like for the LP that's investing in the fund, what like how long are they committed to having their money in the fund? Like what are what are the ways they get their money in and out? Yeah, so it's very simple. It's similar to a syndication. You know, the, the logs of the portal, they wire the money, not a big deal. Uh, then it's quarterly or rather monthly distributions, right? And uh, and then it's a five to seven year hold. And of course, it really depends largely on what's going on in the economy. It's the same way it did with on, on, you know, on any other asset, right? It's like the last thing you want to do is sell an asset when you really don't want to, or it's not a good economic time to do so. Like right now, we're still buying stuff, but what we're usually what we're doing now is we're doing a lot of owner financing. Owner financing is how we're getting deals done. The last five deals that we've done. Have been owner financed. Is that primarily to drive the interest rate down, or is that to get longer, more stable fixed rate terms? It's it's because of the interest rate. Yeah, yeah, and it works out better for it, it works out better not only for us as as buyers, but on the seller side. Think about it for a second. The risk on the seller side is is zero if you think about it. Why? They carry the paper. They carry it. Okay, they own the paper. And they don't take the immediate tax hit from the, from the transaction. Okay, that's the first thing. Secondly, let's say for instance that we decide we're gonna stop paying on this thing. Well, we've already, we already give them 20% down. Yeah. If we stop paying for whatever reason, they take the property back and go sell it again. I mean, yeah. it's a, it's a no, no lose situation for an owner. It really isn't. The I mean, only way they would do better is if they could invest that money in some other better place you know, that for a significantly better return. Right, exactly, exactly. But I think these days, because of the cost of money, and this is and this is part of coming up with creative financing methodologies and applying them, is it, especially in times like this. Now, certainly people are way more receptive now than they were, say, two years ago, right? 100%. Yeah, frenzy. Yeah. Exactly, especially if you're, but you know what, if I can negotiate a 5% five, 5 on a 5% deal, and save 2% rather than giving it to a bank. And you know, the owner makes money, I make money, they get, they don't get the tax hit and all the other fees and all this other nonsense that comes along with it. It's great to just do that, you know? Totally. What is your vision for your life and business next 12 to 18 months? So right now we're, we're focused very much on the, the net lease and development side of business, right? We, we've kicked off some projects already that were started off a while ago. And we're just, we're wrapping those up. The net lease side of the business, we're seeing, um, I, I always chuckle when I say this, cap rates matter most in net lease than it does anywhere else, cap rates, right? Cap rates don't matter on multifamily. If anybody tells you it does, it's a lie. It does not, all right? Cap rate is an indicator of risk. It is not the barometer of which you're going to buy an asset. It should never be on multifamily. On net lease, however, it's, it means a great deal more because that is your spread, essentially, right? Anyway, 
and that's a whole other, that's a whole other discussion. Right. <laughs> so on that lease, uh, we're seeing cap rates finally come back up. They're, they're adjusting now, right? I think people are waking up. They're saying like, uh, you can't do a two cap in California anymore when, when the cost of money is seven and a half, you know, yep. it doesn't make any sense. Um, but where we're truly passionate right now is our, in our media and education business where we're, we're helping people get into the multifamily game. I'm not saying we're going to go, you're going to go up and buy an asset tomorrow. And I'm not going to say that it's easy to do either. It's a lie too, right? We're getting people ready to take advantage of what's going to be coming. And if someone is listening to this and they're like, I want to really do real estate, but if you don't know how you want to understand how to do it today. So when the opportunity does present itself, you know what to do. You have to be prepared, right? Yeah. So we have, we really have two courses. You have, we have an advantage course, right? The multifamily advantage. That one teaches people how to get started in a small multifamily deal. And then we have the multifamily accelerator, which helps people get into like the larger deals, syndicating deals, raising money, all that fun stuff, right? Both of them, there's an online component, online course component, right? Both of them have that. The real value is in the, the weekly mastermind. So 50 week mastermind, huge, right? It's very, very big. So because you're interacting with other people that are underwriting deals. And of course, it's, it's also I, it's yours truly is doing it every, every week with you guys. It's yeah. a guy that's done. I've transacted $350 million worth of stuff. I know what I'm talking about. I can say that confidently, right? right? I'm not gonna say that I'm perfect. I'm not gonna say that everything I say is correct 100% of the time. I'm not gonna say that, but at least I have the experience versus some other folks that usually will put in a, a novice who's never done a deal before. I've talked to those, those students, right. right? But it does happen, you know? I'm actually doing it. I'm meeting with you and, and as, a, as a group effort and we underwrite deals using the same tools, the same methodologies that I've used, right? So that to me is a big deal. I've, and I, I've a, I'm a true believer in being prepared for what's coming and that's why we do it this way, you know? And doing the, the weekly mastermind is huge. Right? It's huge, it's great. Love it. So Augustino, thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing about your life and your business. For those of you out there listening, write down something you learned. Maybe it's going into net lease. Maybe it's just thinking about, maybe not just hopping in, you know, like without doing proper due diligence, maybe it's getting into a course and really getting yourself educated for the opportunities that might lie ahead. Whatever it was that you learned from this episode, write it down, share it with somebody you know so they can hold you accountable. This freedom is required one action at a time. And if you take steps day by day before you know it, you too will be living a life of freedom. Thank you guys for tuning in. We'll catch you on the next episode. Please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Engagement is like gold to us. We can't do what we're doing without it. Reviews and subscriptions, particularly on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube, are worth more than money. So please do what you can to support the show. 